Alfred Edenstein was a Jew that lived back in the 19th century. Edenstein wrote a classic in the Christian realm of the life and times of Jesus Christ. Classic. Uh, Edenstein wrote it with some poetic prose to it. A little difficult to read, but the gems from a Jewish perspective about the life of Jesus Christ are immeasurably valuable to us. In the four Gospels that we have, the arrest, the night of the arrest, Edenstein has put it all together for us in the order that it probably happened by combining all four Gospels to understand. There are things that one Gospel writer left out that the other included and such. But Edenstein's list in sequential order of that night kind of goes like this. Uh, That night after they had their Passover meal, they sang a hymn and walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Not too long after leaving that upper room, Judas arrived at the upper room with the soldiers and chief officers of the temple. Edenstein believes that happened because we'll see something later on. But Judas had left Jesus there and thought he was still there, and so he went and checked the upper room to find it empty. Uh, At this point, Jesus is with his men in Gethsemane, and uh, Matthew and Luke tell us of the prayer of Jesus Christ, of his agonizing, and of the fact that the disciples fell asleep. And as he came out from the agonizing prayer of the willingness to drink the cup of the wrath of God, Judas showed up. Judas led the way. He was, in Edestine's estimation, he was far ahead of the soldiers, first coming into the dark garden. And it says in Matthew that he walked up to the Savior and kissed him. The Greek word for kissed there is to kiss and kiss and kiss repetitively with a very loud volume. Now you can make a kiss a loud smacking sound and since this was the signal that Judas gave to identify Jesus Christ, that's what he did. Can you imagine repeatedly kissing Jesus Christ, smacking him loudly so that the soldiers could find out who it was? At that point, Jesus steps forward and identifies himself, and this is where we have John's narrative. And in so identifying himself, the soldiers and the entire group, which ranged from two to three hundred, fell back. It happened twice. And finally, as they step forward to arrest him, the Roman part of the legion was holding back waiting to see if their services were needed. And as the officers of the temple stepped forward, the disciples asked him, is it now time to fight? Meaning, there were more than just the sword of Peter that night. Most of them had swords. Now, a a Galilean sword was a long knife. It was not this, it was that. Easily hidden here. Peter was the only one who pulled his out and taking a hack, at the leader of the officers of the temple, sliced the ear of Malchus off. 
Peter is the only gospel writer that names the name of Malchus because, or John because John knew the high priest's family and knew the temple and knew who this was by name. Jesus then tells his men to put their swords away and only Dr. Luke, only Dr. Luke records Jesus reaching down as a doctor would that Jesus heals the ear of Malchus. I'd like to see that ear. I think that ear looked like a baby's ear. It was so fresh of skin when Jesus got done with it. And I mentioned last week, Peter was an eighth or a quarter an inch away from killing the man, which would have certainly caused him to be arrested and crucified with Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of God that rescues us from our foolishness. At that point, Jesus is arrested, bound like a common criminal, and the shame that comes with that. At that point, the Roman, the Roman contingent there steps forward, seeing that there's swords drawn, and takes charge and has him arrested. When the disciples see that, they fly, they, they, they run into the garden. The only reason they weren't captured was the fear that Jesus put into the hearts of that group when he said, I am, and they fell backwards. They feared him. One did not run. The Gospel of Mark tells us that it was a young man and that he was dressed in his pajamas, a night gown. Now, we, th- we think that was Mark, and no, no, no doubt it was. Well, what was Mark? as a teenager, probably 12, 13, 14 years old, doing in the garden with all the disciples. Well, his mother owned the upper room. His mother and father were well off, and they owned the upper room that Jesus had eaten the Passover at. And so when Judas showed up with the soldiers to search the upper room, it woke the young man up. And following the contingent of soldiers, that's what Mark was doing there. And it says one of the Roman officers grabbed the cloak of Mark and he struggled free and ran naked into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is led back across the Brook Kidron and back up to the Temple Mount, passing through, no doubt, the Temple Gate called the Sheep Gate. That's significant. It was the gate by which the lambs were brought in to slaughter for the sacrifice. How spiritually significant that Jesus passes through the sheep gate as the Lamb of God for us. Now Edensheim at this point accurately points us to the house of Ennis, which only John records the meeting at the house of Ennis that we looked at last week. Now, Annas was the old guy. He was the power behind the high priest. He had been high priest for several years, but Rome had replaced him. But for years, his sons and now his son-in-law were the real high priest. Annas was the power behind the high priest. He was the mover and the shaker. He was also ran a business in Jerusalem where he sold the sheeps that were used in the day of slaughter of Passover. Uh, They had a racket going in the inner temple wherein 
if you brought a sheep, your own lamb from your own flock, you were rejected by the priest because they found some flaw somewhere. You were directed over to the marketplace, ran in the court of the Gentiles. It was a business ran by Annas. And they, were, they sold you a sheep for five, six, or sometimes more times the value of that sheep. In order for you, you've traveled to Jerusalem, you've got to make the sacrifice. So you paid the price. It's kind of like going to the movie theater and paying $15 for a Coke and a popcorn. That's how it feels. Well, Annas ran that business, and two days before Jesus had cleaned house and torn up and tipped all the money changers and all that stuff, he just he touched Annas' business. So the old man, the power behind the high priest, said, When you capture him, bring him to me first. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record the meeting with Annas because they don't know anything about it. They know what happened. They don't know what was said. Only John knew what was said. How did John find out? John knew the family of the high priest. Listen carefully. This interview that we looked at last week where Annas asked him, where are your disciples? Where are your teachings? By the way, I mentioned, let me say it again. That was the voice of Satan. He was asking Jesus, where are your men now? They're scattered, aren't they? Tell me about your teaching that had such impact on these 11 that they took off. That has been the voice of Satan to every pastor, every Bible teacher of any group as we labor in the Lord, sharing the word of God, and sometimes the disciples flee and take off. And Satan comes in the dark watches and say, really, tell me how effective your teaching is. It can't even make a change in the lives of those who listen to you. The voice of Annas was the voice of Satan and has been for the last 2,000 years. Well, how do we know? How did John know this? How did you know anything about the meeting? I would suggest to you that the man who struck Jesus in the face told the story. He was in there with him when Jesus answered Annas. There's a man who literally punched him in the face, struck him in the face. And Jesus turned to him and looked him in the eyes and said, Look, if I've done wrong, point out the wrong. If I haven't, why do you strike me? And there was something in the look of his eyes, something in the inflection of his voice that tore that man up inside. He had literally punched God in the face. I think his heart was broke that day. I think he was in the early church. I think he told John about this meeting. Now, John does not mention the meeting with Caiaphas. I'll mention it in passing because we're studying the Gospel of John. But John gives the meeting with Annas, which means he is telling the story of God in the flesh, the God who had the right to cleanse his own temple, and the man that it touched by that. But the meeting with Caiaphas, the trial, I almost say that word trial with a sense of disdain. 
It was hardly a trial, it was a lynch mob, is what it was. But John doesn't record it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. In the trial, and I only mention a few things about it in passing because we want to get to Pilate today. But John excludes the entire trial. He just goes from Annas right to Pilate. There were two meetings that night, one late at night, one early in the morning with the Sanhedrin, the full Sanhedrin, or most of them, in order to send Pilate, send Jesus to Pilate. I could go down a list of a long list of infractions, of violations that these Jews did to their own trial system. The high priest or anyone presiding over that cannot ask those on trial to incriminate themselves. They must bring witnesses. If, if a man was given the sentence of death, there had to be a one-day waiting period before it was carried out. The only charge at this time, by the way, the capital punishment had been taken away from the Jews some 40 years before by the Romans. They couldn't kill anybody except on one charge. If the Jews found that another Jew was desecrating the temple itself, if they wanted to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, that would be a charge that the Jews could kill a man for. That's why they asked him. That's why Caiaphas asked, did you say that you could, Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He simply said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, we know that was the temple of his body, not that temple. But that was a charge that Caiaphas tried to lay on him, and if he could have been successful, and it was a, it was a, a crowd of clowns that came in to testify. They got the stories all messed up. They contradicted each other. None of them made sense with each other. And I want you to know through most of this lynch mob, Jesus stood silent with majesty and glory and and without saying a word. I almost get the feeling that everybody that Jesus Christ stood before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, who stood to try him, got the feeling that they were on trial, not him. The majesty and glory. Jesus only responded when they asked him who he was. On to Pilate. Before we look at the verses, I've got to give you history. I've got to. Those of you who love history or settle back, go give it to me. Those of you who aren't are like, can we look into the verses? Before you see Pilate and all that he did, you got to know what's going on. Herod was the king back in the turn of the century. And in 4 BC, he died. He's a good king, half Jewish. Rome liked him. And when he died... He had three sons, and he said to Rome, would you let my three sons rule this whole area? Well, two of them did fine, but his youngest son, Archaeus, uh, was 18 years old, and he took over Judea, was terrible, 18, too young, didn't know what he was doing, messed it all up. The Jews complained to Caesar. Caesar came in and said, fine, 
I'll take over Judea. I'll take over the area. Now, when Rome conquered a land, it put in one of two governments. If the land was passive, if the people were submissive, if there weren't any trouble, he set up a very quasi-calm government that didn't, no soldiers were involved, no weapons were involved. There was simply a, a Roman triune, and he kind of did courses, cases, tried cases, and took care of it. But if a region was a region of troublemakers, if there was rebellious people there, Rome sent an army, at least a small Roman contingency of soldiers, with a proclator. Didn't pronounce that right, but it's, it's close. Well, guess, guess what kind of region Judea was with the Jews? They were troublesome. Constantly talking about the Messiah coming to take over. Constantly causing rifts and stirring up trouble. So they were sent a prefect. And in 26 AD, Pilate shows up on the scene. Now, Pilate must have been very skillful, or Caesar would not have put him over this troublesome spot. But he got into trouble right away. Pilots and all, all these leaders, their area was, headquarters was up in Caesarea Philippi. But during major festivals like Passover, they brought a contingency of two to three hundred soldiers down into Jerusalem to stay to keep an eye on the masses. The first time Pilate visited Jerusalem and rode in with his soldiers, his soldiers had long staffs with their horses, with banners of Rome. And on the head of that staff was a metal bust of Caesar. Every Roman governor that ruled before Pilate respected the Jews by taking that metal bust of Caesar off because that to the Jew was a graven image. But Pilate refused. He rode in with his horses and his men with that bust of Caesar on the top of that pole right into the temple precincts and the Jews were horrified. They begged him to take those down. He refused. They followed him back to Caesarea and, and, and hounded him for several weeks. Finally, he said, I'll meet with you, Jews. I'll meet you in the amphitheater. So he brought them all in and surrounded them by Roman guards and Roman soldiers. And he said to them this, You stop worrying me about those. I'm not going to change my mind. If you say anything else... I will kill you. A convincing argument, say. At that point, all the leaders of Jerusalem and Israel that were there lifted their heads and bore their necks to Pilate. Kill us. Pilate had to back down. Strike one. Strike two, and I'll, I'll be briefer with this one. Uh, Jerusalem needed a water supply. They needed a brand new sewer system and a water supply. Well, Pilate thought, well, I'll just do the Jews a favor and put it in. Well, as an old project, somebody's got to pay for it. Well, in the temple, there were millions of dollars in gold. 
So Pilate thought, well, you're going to benefit, you're going to pay. And he raided the temple treasury to pay for a water supply that was for the Jews. But they were obsessed. They were furious. They caused so much trouble that during a high festival when they almost rioted, Pilate sent Roman soldiers down into the crowd dressed like Jews, and they had daggers. And at a given signal, all those Roman soldiers pulled those daggers out and stuck them in a bunch of Jews, and they all fell down, and the blood poured in the temple. Violation number two. He was in trouble, because you could be reported back to Caesar. A third incident he had on the shields they brought in, he had an insignia of Rome, and again, a graven image was brought in. They finally complained to Caesar, and this is what Caesar said. You do one more thing that causes trouble in Judea. You do one more thing, I'll call you back to Rome. Enter Jesus Christ. Enter the situation. I'll tell you before we read the story, Pilate made every decision he made in order to keep his job. Okay. With that long deal, take a look at verse eight, chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus. This is not the first time that phrase is used. It's also uh, used back in verse 13. Uh, first, they led him. The, the idea is a lamb to the slaughter they led. A lamb to the slaughter they led. So they led him to Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. Now the governor stayed down in Herod's palace. It was marble. It had colonnades. It was magnificently beautiful. That's where he stayed. He stayed in the best place in town. Uh, the Holland, the, the, the whatever it is, Ritz-Carlton. He stayed at the best place. It's beautiful up there. So they took him up, and it was early in the morning, probably 7 o'clock, maybe earlier, which didn't bother a Roman at all because a Roman liked to get an early start to his day. A Roman started early so he could get done early. Make sense? So at 7 o'clock that morning or earlier, they show up. Now, they themselves meaning those who led Jesus, they themselves did not enter the, co the governor's headquarters. They didn't enter the Gentiles' residences so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Willing to crucify the Son of God and yet careful to stay undefiled ceremonially so that they could perform a religious exercise. It would not be the last time that blatant sin was occurred, but those who are committing the sin are very careful to be religiously accurate, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel is the idea. Let me read to you a quote from Arthur Pink on his commentary on this particular section. Pink writes this. The Savior was tried before what ought to have been the holiest court on earth, but was condemned by the most fearful perversion of justice and abuse of its form that is recorded anywhere in history. The amazing contrast presented are intensely affecting. The friend of sinners 
was shackled by handcuffs and leg irons. The judge of all the earth was arraigned before a fallen son of Adam. The Lord of glory was treated with the followest scorn. The Holy One was condemned as a blasphemer. Liars bore witness against the truth. He who is the resurrection and the life was doomed to die. Good words by Pink to give us the description of this moment as he's led to Caiaphas' headquarters. Look with me back down at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them. I take it that Jesus was taken into the governor's headquarters and they stayed outside. Now before I read this next verse, I need to tell you that Pilate was not unaware of what had happened the night before. Neither was he unaware of the charges they were going to bring against him. When you've got a contingency of about 600 soldiers and you've come down to police a city that was bulging with over a million pilgrims, you are outnumbered. A million Jews filled Jerusalem. They had 600 Roman soldiers to watch. That's not good odds. So any trouble, Pilate would know all about it. He would be very careful to know the details of it. He wanted to avoid what was coming. And so he takes an early shot over the bow to these religious leaders. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Romans, short and to the point. What are you accusing him of? I don't want the long version, I want the short version. Because probably what you're going to accuse him of is none of the Romans' business. I want short work of this. I want this man back in your jurisdiction. I don't want anything to do with him. What are you accusing him? He tried to make a short deal of it. Notice their response. It was one of arrogancy in verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, if he wasn't a malefactor, if he was not a criminal, we would never have brought him to you. What they're saying is, Pilate, we are the council. We are the great Sanhedrin. Are you questioning the guilt of a man that we have brought to you? You don't need to know the specifics. You just need to know that we are all the authority of the Jewish things. How dare you ask us what the accusation is? Isn't it enough that we have brought him to you as a criminal? Do you see their arrogancy? Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourself. He knew the charges. He didn't need to hear it. Take him yourself. Judge him by your own law. I want nothing to do with your, your religious superstitions. Take him. Take him. I don't need to hear the accusations because I've already heard them. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Wow. This is a charge that they wanted him dead. We are not allowed. You have, ta- you have taken away capital punishment from us. You Romans took away the right for us to kill anyone. We can't do it. You have to. Look at the pressure there. One more verse and we'll, we'll wrap it up and get back to it next week. I know it's late. Verse 32. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show them by what kind of death he was going to die. If the Jews could have killed him, it would have been by stoning. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men. Jesus said, I choose how I die. I choose by the crucifixion, which was a strictly Roman practice. If they could have nailed him on the three-day rebuilding the temple after he destroyed it, if they could have nailed him, I mean, what did they do to Stephen? They stoned him to death. The Jews stoned. The Romans hung on a tree. This he said to show that he was in charge of everything that he was doing. I want us to take our time next week on this interchange between Pilate and Jesus because it is incredibly insightful into the Roman mind and really into our minds of how we address and think of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple thoughts. The majesty of Jesus Christ is seen in a court of fools. Every court he stood before him was a a kangaroo court of phonies and imposters and sinful sons of Adam. And yet he stood with such great majesty, taking my sin and your sin upon himself. Become accounted as a criminal when we are the real criminals. The glory of the perfect one of all of heaven stood between in front of fallen men like majesty. I don't know if you've ever been to a rocky shoreline. We went to Maine one time and watched the waves crash against the rocks, crash against those massive granite rocks. You know the rocks never moved. As hard as those waves came in, crashing against those rocks, they just flew up and went back down. Christ stood like the majestic rock that he was, and the waves of the sinfulness of man crashed against him, and he never once, he never once answered He never once disgraced himself by becoming in the flesh. He never once sinned in the most hideous of contradictions and hypocrisy. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. The cloak of religion has always been a favorite one for covering sin. Man, that's so true. Men who commit hideous sins covering themselves with a cloak of religion. There was a, situ- but, but, there's a situation in the Corinthian church where a mother and a son, probably a stepson, were involved intimately and it was sin and they were in that church, had to be rebuked by Paul. And Paul said, what are you doing? You're just saying this is okay and it's not. Glorying in the fact that they were so gracious and so loving that they didn't care what anybody in the church did. Today, if there's sin within the church and the church deals with it, the church is labeled as judgmental, critical, and uh, condescending. And why can't we be gracious and loving? Because sin is sin in the economy of God. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But sin within a religious setting It's still sin. 
I've seen Christians involved in sin use Bible verses to justify what they were doing. Use the Scripture. Credible. The hypocrisy of all that. Number three, Jesus became unclean in that he entered, he became sin for us. He never was unclean. He became unsin. He became sin for us. He entered, you know, they, they had no problem shoving him into the Gentiles' residences. They had no problem putting him in Pilate's house. So ceremony, he didn't have to eat the Passover. He was the Passover. And he became defiled in order to make us clean. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your mercy and kindness. We are amazed at this scene before us of the mock trial, of the lynch mob, of, of, of the situation with Annas and trial of Caiaphas and the weakness of Pilate. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went through the shame of all that in order that we might be clean. That you took on sin, that you became sin, and yet pure and holy so that you might pay for our sin. Father, let us never forget the shame that you endured the shame of being bound, the shame of being arrested, the shame of standing before liars, the shame of being accused of things you never did or said, the shame of being brought before hundreds and thought to be a criminal, the shame of all that, that you might heal us of our shame, that you might clean us in your blood. We thank you for this. I pray for anyone here today who's never made that decision. I pray for believers in Christ, true believers in Christ, that we would walk lives holy and honorable to you, not using any religious ceremony or practice or ritual to cloak and hide sin. Lord Jesus, we love you. Cast our love upon you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.